Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Thatcher Baker Briggs. He's a certified sommelier out of California. I first met him when we ate at Cezanne a couple years ago. At the time, Cezanne had basically everybody on the floor in the front of house, I think was a psalm of some level. So it was really like strange concept, but he was kind of the one that we interacted with the most. And he also kind of gave us some recommendations and helped us out with um, potentially getting reservations at another place too as well. Luckily, we didn't have to go that route, but kind of gave us kind of like this go, you know, go behind uh, if we needed kind of another avenue to get into a restaurant that we were looking at getting into. So always just kind of remembered the name. It was super unique and everything. And he gave me his business card and I probably lost it somewhere within one of the moves or something. But the name just always kind of stuck with me. And I remember looking him up on LinkedIn and seeing what he was doing. And he was still at Cezanne, I think, at the time. And and then he started kind of his own wine uh, consulting thing. And then I saw a couple articles came out uh, last fall, one in Eater, primarily that I saw. It was kind of a profile of what he was doing. And he he started, you know, his own wine consulting, his private wine consulting business and, you know, started like an online retail shop component to go with it too as well. And and it was super, you know, interesting and, you know, it was definitely somebody I was like, I wonder if I could get him on the podcast. And I reached out and and heard back pretty much right away and, you know, we were able to set something up and, you know, definitely had an awesome conversation. So just another point of view from another sommelier and, and kind of he goes into just you know, coming up through restaurants, he cooked for a long period of time and eventually kind of got into wine once he started working at Qua, uh, which is uh, Daniel Patterson's Michelin starred restaurant in San Francisco. And then he really kind of wine really took off for him once he went over to Japan and he was able to kind of do a whole lot of different stuff. And then he came back and he helped open Angler, which was a Saison offshoot with uh, Josh Skeens there, uh, who was the chef at Saison and for until he left. And then, um, Angler is kind of his uh, concept. They're, they have two. They have one in San Francisco was the first one, one in L.A., and then one's going to open in like the Seattle Bellevue area uh, in a couple of years. So, yeah, he helped do that. And then then he started doing his own thing. And it was really interesting because when you first think of sommeliers, you only think like the only avenue they could go is they could work either in a restaurant or they could work for like a wine shop or like a wine distributor. But there are, you know, Thatcher's one, and we have a guest coming up too as well that she's kind of do, also doing something a little bit different within the wine field too as well. And and there are different avenues that people were able to kind of cut out for themselves with social media and, and everything being online and stuff. So it's really interesting to see kind of people go, well, I didn't really want to go any farther with this because I found that I could do all of this over here and I enjoyed that aspect way more. So but he goes into everything. He goes into how he got started, you know, coming up through the kitchens and, and why he started the wine consulting business, traveling during COVID. Uh, he was still sourcing bottles for clients, even in the middle of COVID. So we get into that too as well. It's a really, really interesting conversation, just a different, unique, different take on just kind of the wine industry too as well. You know, super happy to that he was able to come on and, and really thankful and everything too for for his staff and, and everything to help, you know, getting it set up and being able to record and everything, you know, he's, I think at one point he says that he's like uh, 29, I think in our conversation. And I remember at that moment, it just like, I was like, damn, I'm almost 33. And like, you're way more successful than me, but he's doing what he loves. It's just, it, he's just been coming up, you know, working since he was 13. It's just really impressive him. And like, you know, somebody like Olivia Hammond, who we had on a couple episodes ago, who they're the, these young people, almost like prodigies kind of in a way where they're super driven, super focused, 
and just they see it and then they execute it kind of right behind it. And it's just really impressive. And it just kind of kind of helps, you know, push you a little bit harder and a little bit farther too as well. Like, wow, you know, I they're really successful. And to get to that level, you kind of see what they had to go through. And, and, and you know that like I got to push a little bit harder too and, you know, stay up a little bit later and continue to work when, you know, work on my stuff when nobody else is working on their stuff because that's kind of how you get ahead. So definitely cool conversation. Make sure to follow them on Instagram at Thatcher Baker Briggs, also at Thatcher's Wine Consulting. Page up on the Spoon Mob website for them too as well with all the contact information where you can find them. Make sure to visit the website, thatcherswinconsulting.com. And without further delay, here is my conversation with certified sommelier Thatcher Baker Briggs of Thatcher's Wine Consulting. Again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, you know, really appreciate it. My first interaction with you was at Saison. Um, you were one of several people. It's a kind of a collaborative uh, environment with uh, helping different tables and, and drinks and stuff like that. But you were kind of the only one that I remember the name from. And I'm really good with names, really good with, you know, picking out and asking everybody's name. But you were the only one I remember. You helped us tremendously with just kind of like, oh, if you're trying to get a reservation over here, like go, you can go through this and all that stuff. So then I kind of was, you know, I saw uh, an article come up, I think on Eater that you did and you started your own wine business and everything. And I was like, oh, he left Saison and he, and he's starting his own thing. And I thought that was really awesome and then kind of read some details about it. So I definitely wanted to circle back with you kind of once started the podcast. I was like, I wonder if he would be interested in doing it. And and you were, so here we are. So, uh, you know, once again, I appreciate you coming on. You know, we'll do kind of with similar with everybody, but uh, going through kind of your, your career up to now. And then I got some specific questions for you. So I'll let you kind of kick it off. But I mean, you know, you're originally from Windsor, Canada, I believe. And how did you kind of get started in, I mean, restaurants first is kind of where you started, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm most my, my, uh, uh, yeah, so I started basically getting into food uh, when I was around 10. And it just kind of came, I don't really know exactly where it came from, because I didn't really grow up in like a, uh, you know, a food oriented family. I mean, it was things were pretty simple and casual. Uh, my mom didn't really like cooking. My grandmother didn't like cooking. My grandfather tried, but you know, he was just kind of having fun, uh, kind of on the barbecue, if you will. Uh, and uh, I don't know. And, and when I started I started really focusing on like Asian ingredients. I grew up in Windsor and there was a really big sort of um, Chinese, Vietnamese, um, Japanese community there. And I just, something caught me. And when it caught me, I got this bug and it just kept going and going. And so when I was 13, I, I got my first job in what was the sort of uh, fine dining restaurant in the city. Windsor is pretty small. It's about 200,000 people. So there was really one or two restaurants that were sort of the, the fine dining places to go. And um, I got the job because, so my mom surprised me on my 12th birthday uh, with cooking lessons. And, you know, so we went uh, to these, uh, to the cooking class. It was like once, once a week, I think, uh, like every Wednesday or something. And, uh, you know, you'd go into the kitchen and the chef would cook like three courses and they would pair wine with it. And obviously being 12, I wasn't having wine, but, you know, I always thought that it was quite interesting. It, it was, I definitely stood out because I was probably the youngest person by 60 years. Like everyone was 70 and retired and just kind of like, you know, hanging out on Wednesday night. 
And uh, at the end of the, I think it was like four or six lessons, he was like, hey, do you want a job? And, and I said, uh, I mean, I said, yeah, you know, I want to be a cook. And he's like, well, you have to be a dishwasher. And I was like, oh, uh, you know, I got to think about it. And I, and I got home and I told my mom, she's like, you're going to do it. And I was like, okay. So I took the job and um, started dishwashing. It didn't last very long. It was, uh, I probably full-time washed dishes for a few months. And then uh, as time went, they kind of pulled me up on the line and they're like, hey, we want to show you how to make salad. We want to show you how to do the appetizers, blah, blah, blah. And so just kind of working my way up through um, the ranks in the kitchen. I spent about four years there. Uh, and by the time that I left, I was pretty much running the restaurant. I had helped him open uh, a couple other restaurants. I was pretty cool uh, by like 16 um, to kind of be in that environment. And then from there, I moved on to a, uh, a sushi restaurant called Oishi. Um, it's delicious in Japanese. It, it was a, definitely a big change of environment. So the restaurant that I worked for originally, Porcini's, um, was this very European-oriented uh, kitchen. The chef, Gino, was a quintessential European trained chef. So very intense, a lot of like, um, this is the way that we do it and that, that, that's why, you know? And uh, when I moved on to the Japanese restaurant, it was a very different uh, environment. It was in the sort of downtown area. The chefs were per- perhaps say a little more edgy, wanting to be a little bit more adventurous. I'd say like for me, the thing, Besides the sort of being in touch with Japanese ingredients and, and sort of butchering fish and, and, you know, obviously actually making sushi, like I learned a lot, surprisingly, of like a lot of organizational skills there. I, it, was, it was career cooks, which is, I think, very different than career chefs. They, it's, it's somebody that has worked in the industry for 30 years um, and, and not ever wanted to like run run a restaurant they wanted to just cook great food and so they had all these really kind of interesting ways of 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 storing things but i (laughs) the one thing that i always take took away from this uh from from oishi was just how you had to make a decision you could be a really disorganized cook or you could be the most meticulous and and I remember working with this one cook darcy who was we were we were super close and he would uh, if you were to like a saran wrap, a, it had to be perfectly clear, no wrinkles, nothing on the edges, cut with a knife, like just, and then like everything needed to be like perfectly straight. And it, it's, it was so funny, like, you know, to this day, I mean, I still have that same mentality of doing it. And, and so, yeah, it, it was, it was a really interesting place to work. And so I spent, um, I spent two years there, uh, and then ended up actually going back to Porcino's. It was, well, it was Porcini's and then they called it Porcino's. It was kind of a reiteration of it. Um, they, the chef partnered with the other basically top restaurant in, in Windsor. And, uh, so the chef Jonathan kind of came on, he brought a lot more influence of, uh, of Italian food. Um, so historically it was kind of French oriented, but with an Italian kind of influence, sort of Northern Italian and, and Jonathan brought a lot more sort of Southern uh, inspiration as well. And so they ended up opening a couple restaurants um, that I helped them uh, do. And I, I took over when I came back, I, I became the sous chef uh, of the restaurant which was a really interesting experience of, you know, being so young and, and, and being in those roles. Jonathan was 
pretty inspirational. Inspirational. I mean, he he was really the first chef that I worked with that was not only a chef but a business owner that also thought about the front of the house, um, that thought about the wine, that thought about the cocktail programs, that thought about food costs. You know, like just all like he was the chef, but also the businessman, and it was really interesting. Um, to kind of sit down and have conversations with him, especially in the in the opening process where we would um, walk around the space and talk about construction, talk about architects, you know, things that like as a cook, you don't really pay much attention to. But as your career goes on, uh, turns out to be something that adds a lot of edge when you move into sort of a director or manager position. So I helped them get the restaurant open, but I was I was. I was young and I was hungry and I was like, I've overdone Windsor. Like I, I need something that makes me a little uncomfortable. I need something that pushes me and challenges me. You know, I think a lot of people in small cities, you get comfortable, you know, you, you don't want to leave. And I, and I didn't want that for myself. And so I had heard of a uh, chef moving to Canada from the UK. Um, so Warren Garrity was one of Marco Pierre White's right hand men and yeah so he was moving to vancouver to run west restaurant which even to this day west restaurant is probably on the top you know three or five list in canada and consistently has been um it's always got amazing chefs and it's a really beautiful restaurant i heard that he was he was was going there and i was like oh well i had just went to europe for like two months um as just kind of traveling around on my own uh, as soon as I turned 18, I was literally already in the air. Where did you go in Europe? I went everywhere. So I flew into, I flew into Venice um, and then just made my way down and around and back up Italy. I went as far south as Naples and as far as north as uh, Turin. I flew to, to Sweden for a little bit. I was in Stockholm in a small town, uh, Jönköping, which is actually like a university town. I was visiting a friend there and they actually had some pretty cool food uh, when I was there as well. And then I flew back. I was in all over France for a little while, Paris, Nice, Marseille. I went to Switzerland. I was in Geneva for a few days and that was kind of the trip. And, and it was, you know, I was 18, so I couldn't really afford to eat at the sort of Michelin starred places. Um, but what I did try to do was eat at all of the small kind of local places, visit. I mean, I probably every single day was at a market um, and just kind of like buying fresh fruit or, you know, at the time, Airbnbs didn't exist, unfortunately. So it was you couldn't really like go to the market and like buy meat and cook. But I was there just kind of seeing what the ingredients were, buying, buying what I could, tasting what I could. It was a really amazing experience. And I think like leaving Windsor, getting out of that and seeing a part of the world that really like I've, I've never experienced and being alone really made me hungry. And so when I, when I found out that Warren was moving to Vancouver, I literally just left. <laughs> I just, I just moved to Vancouver. I didn't have a job. And, you know, I called the restaurant, I called the restaurant, didn't get an answer, sent an email. And then I got, ended up getting a response and they're like, yeah, sure. We would, you can come in for a, a, a stop. West was, it was an interesting stage. So, you know, I thought that, I thought that the environment that I had worked in was um, tough, you know, and I had definitely built up a lot of extra skin, which is needed in the kitchen. 
And getting into West was just a, a whole other world that I was definitely not ready for, which is exactly what, what, what is exactly what I needed. Um, and so the stage went really well. It was, uh, I think it was two days, maybe three days. I sat down with the, with the chef at the end and he goes, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't know if you're a really good cook or if I just have a lot of respect for, for, for Maggie. And he's like, that's why I'm going to hire you. I don't know if it's your name, Margaret Thatcher, or if you're just a great cook. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, whatever one you like, I'm happy to take the job. It doesn't matter. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. So took the job and it was, it was, it was a lot. I mean, it was a really incredible experience. The, the detail, the precision, I still have the cookbook in. And it's funny because this was in, um, when was this like 2009, I think. Like the food that, 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 that we were doing back in that day, I mean, we were, it was so precise. All of the cooks that I worked with were really, really, really talented. And a lot of them are doing some really great stuff in Vancouver or, or abroad now. It was definitely an, an environment that it, it allowed me to get rid of um, a lot of stresses that probably could come up later in a career because it was just raw cooking. I mean, it was like, if you make a mistake, you're getting a pot thrown at you. you. And you just, when you grow up in that environment, you just go like, well, okay, I got it. Like, nothing matters. Like the way you say something to me doesn't matter. Like, you know, obviously in retrospect today, that's not, not so cool, you know, but like at the same time, it allows you to really just focus on the task and not worry about some of the other things. And it, it's really come back to benefit me later in my, in my career. You were there for like about six months too, right? Yeah, exactly. So what happened was, um, it was I think I think it was a little longer than that. I think it was like nine months. But but yeah, I can't remember exact timeline. But so I got I got out there a few months after he took over, and then he ended up leaving. And so I was like, well, I, you know, I moved across the country to like work with him. And I, um, although um, David, who took over for him after, was really truly an amazing chef. I just had wanted to be there to work with Warren. And so when he left, we celebrated my 19th birthday together, actually, which is the drinking age in Canada, which was a party. And then, and then he went out here, he went back to the UK and uh, I, I also left. So um, I looked for some other positions in, in Vancouver and I kind of had thought that I was already at the, the pinnacle of what was exciting in the city. And so I kind of looked around and I had learned about David Lee, who was running a Splendido at the time in Toronto, which Splendido was, I mean, one of the most cutting edge places in, in, in Canada for sure. And, and they were getting a lot of press back in the day. It's, it's, it's closed now, but David was in the process of opening a new restaurant in downtown Toronto called Nota Bene. I had heard about it and I had sent an email. David and I had a really great call and he hired me on the phone, which I, I've never experienced uh, in, a, in a restaurant before. He's like, yeah, like get, come to Toronto. Like, we'd love to hire you. Great. So maybe a couple of weeks after you know, Warren left, I flew to Toronto and, uh, and started working like the same day that I flew in. Um, and uh, it was, Nota Bene was a absolute monster of a restaurant it was uh it's at the time i didn't even really put it into perspective um but now that i think about it the the level of the, the way that 
the food was being executed was at such a high level for the amount of volume that that restaurant did. I mean, during the, the busy seasons, we were doing 300 for lunch and 400 covers for dinner. And the average entree was probably $50. So the, the, average, the average check average for two people was probably, you know, 200 bucks. And that's a really high check average for that many people. Especially at that time, too, with the, you know, kind of global recession and everything around 2009, 2010. Exactly. And the restaurant was so busy. There was so much, there was so many cooks and and service uh, team and managers. It was really an amazing place because I had never really worked at like a super high volume restaurant before. So it was really cool to work with so many different personalities. I'll say that like probably pretty much anybody that's doing anything relevant today in Toronto has all went through either Nota Bene or Splendido. And so many amazing restaurants and cooks uh, have stemmed from from that restaurant. It was, um, again, a really intense environment, but it was one of these env- these environments that like Everyone is pushing to be the best that they possibly can. There was so much to learn at that at that restaurant. No matter where you were, in what position you you worked in, whether you were you know a, a receiver in the morning that would receive all the things from the farms, and uh, or if you were a sous chef or whatever, there because it was such a big restaurant, you have so many personalities that you learn management skills at that restaurant because you always have somebody working underneath of you. Even if you're, even if you are, you know, first week uh, and you start working Garmanger in a couple of days, probably after that, there's somebody new that you need to show the ropes to. So it was, it was a really, really interesting restaurant. I, I think for me, seeing what people are doing now that have come from that restaurant is, is pretty exciting. I mean, everyone after working there for a few years, you know, went on to, went on to do such cool things. I mean, went to Central. Um, some people went to go work at Noma. Some people went to Japan. I mean, everyone went to all these great restaurants. And I think like David Lee, while a very, well, when he started, he wasn't. When he started, he was uh, a, a, a yeller for sure. But as he got older, he really mellowed down. It just became, he would just walk up to you. And if something was wrong, he wouldn't really have to say anything. He would just look at you and throw it down on the counter and you would fix it right away. And it was, uh, it was, you know, it was an amazing experience. Doing so much volume, it just helps you really be an organized cook. You know, after that, I, again, I was like, okay, like I've done fine dining, small, I've done fine dining, big, like what is the next step? Like I'm in Canada, like where can I go in Canada? And it's just like, well, with the exception of maybe moving to Montreal, I've done the sort of best restaurants in, in the country. And so where can I put myself that is really, really pushing? And I was like, you know, I, I think I need to go and work in Michelin starred restaurants. And so I basically just sat down and compiled a list of, um, of the top like 10 or 15 restaurants around the world that I was really interested in. Obviously, some would be a little easier to actually get a visa for to work in whatever, but it didn't really, that wasn't really a defining factor to me. Probably the first or second restaurant that I emailed was Qua in San Francisco. Were you targeting specifically like restaurants in America or did you not care if it was in Europe or Japan or anything like that? 
it honestly didn't matter. I'm lucky because I have dual citizenship. So my dad's American. So I have two passports. So obviously the U.S. was the easiest route. But I was also looking at a lot of restaurants in the U.K. You know, at the time, I'm not sure if the if it's still a thing. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it is. But like working uh, holiday visas were were pretty attainable for Canadians. Not for the American side, not at all. But for Canadians, because it's often reciprocal. Um, it's easy to like go to Australia for a year or New Zealand or Japan or, or uh, I think France and Italy was one, Portugal was one. So there was a lot of options to get a visa at least for a year. And then ob- then after that, the idea was you, you could get s- sponsored and stay a little bit longer. So I just kind of left it open. And I think the number one or number two restaurant that I, that I applied to was, was Qua in San Francisco. And I had been watching Qua for a while because I mean Daniel was in in is and and I, I I sometimes feel like maybe he doesn't get enough credit for the really incredible things that he's that he's done. But he was, you know, I mean, this is when Cook It Raw was starting. He was foraging and this is really before, you know, Noma, you know, took off into into see like Rene Redzepi like doing, you know, sort of homage dishes to Daniel is kind of an amazing, an amazing thing. And so Qua had been on my radar, you know, they were, he was, you know, the San Pellerino 50 list kind of coming up that list. And so they responded right away. And it was Evan Rich who responded, who now runs Rich Table in San Francisco. They responded right away. And I said, they're like, can you come for a stage? And I said, yeah, I can be there like next week. <laughs> so I like, was like, oh, I need to take a vacation. They're like, uh, okay, it's prompts. They're like, okay, we can, we'll figure it out. And so I, I flew to San Francisco spent a couple of days at Qua and then I was lucky to, to, to be offered the job. It was such a different environment, even more, like even more unusual than I was used to than like West, for example. I mean, it was just such a precise kitchen where there was rulers, uh, you know, to measure the, the way that you're cutting seaweed and just, it was, it was really a, a really cool experience. And I was so excited I had the hardest time finding a place to live, but like figured it out and, and accepted the job. And a few months later, moved to San Francisco. And that was it. I didn't, I didn't think about it. I just went. It, you know, Daniel, I think, has had a lot of influence on my, on my career. He, he's one of the most precise tasters that I've, ever, that I've ever met. He, every single time when he was in the kitchen, every single time that you went to plate something, he would taste every single element of the dish. If you were to plate two of something and there was a sauce that was already pre-made, he would taste it then and then 30 seconds after. And he would probably say, oh, it needs one more drop of lemon juice and two more grains of salt the second time that you plate. He was just like every single thing. And so I think I took a lot away from from Daniel and in that level of, of precision. Again, there was also some really amazing cooks that that had come through the kitchen some of the more classically trained cooks, you know, chefs that had worked for Robichon for like, you know, 10 years, others that had, you know, spent a lot of time at the laundry. There was, you know, some that were a little more like new wave that had spent five years at like um, Alinea, for example, that had a very different approach. It was the most <laughs> anal retentive kitchen that I've, I've ever worked in. It was incredible. So like, I, there's a joke that is in the Bay Area, and it's all over the industry, like green tape moments. And it kind of stems from a story essentially at like the French Laundry where somebody got reamed out for not cutting their scissors with or the, the green tape that you would write on 
on a container, not cutting it with scissors. So somebody had just torn it. And, and that was like the, the most easy thing at, at Qua. I mean, like we cleaned our stations multiple times a day. There was somebody sweeping the floor on a set schedule every 15 minutes. Like it was, it was really an amazing kitchen to work in, just very detail oriented. It was also at the time, I mean, you know, we were rising up through the, through the, you know, San Pellegrino 50 list. And so we were doing guest dinners with, with all of these really amazing chefs. And like, you know, we cooked with like Magnus Nielsen, which was incredible. Ben Shiri came in. I mean, there was just really all of these great chefs that were kind of popping up and uh, we were playing around. You go foraging in the morning for like with, with Daniel for like all these different ingredients and stuff. And also working and also like really trying to keep things local and, and sustainable. We didn't serve. There wasn't caviar. There wasn't foie gras. There wasn't any of these luxury ingredients. I mean, probably the most luxury ingredient that we offered there was probably um, abalone. And uh, that's about it. I mean, then honestly, like it was it was a lot of vegetables, oysters. But yeah, it was I would say most of the time it got some slack for it, obviously, because, when you, you know, you're spending 250, 300 bucks and you're getting 75 percent vegetables, you know, back in 2012 or 11. You know, people were like, no way. Now it's like now if you're not serving a vegan tasting menu, apparently you're not you're not cool. So and so, yeah, I spent some time there. It was it was really an, an amazing adventure. Daniel's back there, too, now, right? Because he left, I think, to do was it the Boku's door or, or something? he was doing something. And then he, I think he's back there now, right? So Daniel's yeah, I think Daniel's back. As far as I know, he's he, he's back. They had seen some other chefs kind of come in and, and take over. Um, he wanted to spend more time with his family. A couple chefs stepped in and then he eventually ended up going back. I don't know, obviously, what's happening after this year. Um, I would love to to revisit because a lot of, I mean, honestly, I ate there when he went back and he, he brought back a lot of classical dishes. And some of the best examples of a number of ingredients um, that I've ever tasted are, are actually the things that he's cooked. So he did a lamb dish. It was so simple. It was just lamb poached and lamb fat and then just grilled kind of over Japanese charcoal. And then he served just a Swiss chard. The stems were were poached in garum. And like that was the whole dish. And it was just like a, a sauce that was made from lamb jus, lamb fat, emulsified. Like you boil it and then add in some champagne vinegar. And it was honestly one of the best lamb preparations I ever had. His, the abalone, we aged the abalone. Normally everyone is, you know, you steam it or braise it or sous vide it for hours. We would get the abalones in, shuck the abalones, put them in towels, put them in a vac bag, put them on ice and let them sit for five to seven days. And then we would pound the abalone. And it was a totally different texture than than a lot of abalones that I've that I've ever had. And it was almost like this perfect mix between pork chops and scallops. Like that's kind of how I would if you put those two things together. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know what's happening, but I would, I, you know, obviously I would love to go back and, and dine again because I have some great um, memories there. But after spending a little bit of time there, I got a call from, from Jonathan from the restaurant that I had worked for in Windsor. And he was just kind of like, what are you doing? Evan at Hua had just left and we got a new chef de cuisine in. I also think at that time too, 
Matt Tinder, who was the pastry chef of Qua, who bar none, it made the best desserts like I've ever had. I, I, I'll give him, I'll give Matt those, that credit. His desserts were incredible. They're just like, he was a savory chef that turned pastry and like found this balance in, in dessert. It was really spectacular. But point is, you know, these guys were leaving, you know, when I got the call, I said, okay, all right, I'm, I'm interested in, in what Jonathan was doing was completely revamping his entire uh, restaurant. And he said, would you come back for a few months? You know, you had spent time in Qua. Could you help us, you know, redesign the restaurant, redesign the kitchen, uh, look at the wine list, look at the cocktail program, just be involved in kind of everything. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Like, all right, let's do it. So I, I, I ended up uh, going back for, I think it was there for maybe, maybe a, six months. I, I think maybe, maybe nine months, maybe a year. I can't quite remember. We redid everything. It was really, it was really cool to be a part of, but I found at that time, like a total gap in my, in my knowledge, you know, I was fine with, with the kitchen and, and, and everything. But like when he started talking about wine, I had a little bit of, I, I, a little bit of experience from just kind of working at Qua, but like, I never paid any attention. I was I was a, I was a hardcore cook. I just like drank beer and like that's it. Did shots of whiskey and tequila. Like I didn't, you know, pay any attention to to wine at the time. And so I just found that I was like, huh. Like my goal and aspiration is to be a, is to own a restaurant. I don't want to be the the chef that doesn't care about the dining room, that doesn't care about wine. And honestly, I think, in my opinion, the only reason that Qua never got the third Michelin star back in those days was the disconnect between the dining room and the kitchen. There was no cohesiveness. There was no, there was no, um, uh, there was no like rallying together to try to achieve something magical. I'm the kitchen and you're the sommelier and you're the, you know, the dining room captain. And like, I don't want to talk to you, (laughs) you know, Uh, we're just going at each other. And so I, you know, I didn't want that for, for, for myself. And so when I got back in Windsor, um, I was just 21 when I, when I got back to Windsor. So we're revamping this restaurant and I just start putting my head in, in the, in wine books. And it meant, it was meant to just kind of gain some basic knowledge. And once I got into it, I was just obsessed. We were obviously redoing the restaurants. So we were working like 14, 15, 16 hours a day, six days a week. And on my one or maybe two days off, I was studying for 12 hours a day. And it was like the only thing that I did. I didn't go see friends. Like I just was reading wine books. I think in about six months, you know, from when I got back, I ended up passing um, the certified exam. Did you go straight into the certified exam or did you do anything before that? Yeah, so you do that. So the quartermaster small is you do intro exam, which I did like after like a month or two months. Um, I, I flew back to San Francisco did the intro exam. Uh, it's like a three day thing. You go in, they have like a few lectures and then you take the, the test. And I actually, I, I scored the the highest on that, on that test. Now that I think about it, I forgot about that. Uh, they like wait. So they like, they like don't call your name. And then the last name that they call is the highest score. And I, I was just sitting there being like, I don't understand how I didn't pass this <laughs> the entire time. And then they finally called and I was like, Oh, okay. Like, it would be nice if you could call that first. So I did that. And then I flew back, studied more. And then I took the certified exam in, in New York. I had never worked service. I really, like, I, I was I was very nervous when I had mentioned before that the sort of stress and, like, just focus on the task would come back to benefit me. It did in the, in the service exam. 
because I, I was great on the tasting exam was no problem. I've always been like a very like theory oriented person. So the, the theory exam was very easy. Um, but the service exam, I was, I was nervous, but I was cool, calm and collected except until I guess even still through, but I did. So you pour, you know, six or nine glasses of champagne or whatever, and then you have to pick the, up the full glasses of champagne and put them at the tr- on the tray and walk away. And so I picked up probably never in my life ever carrying a full tray of champagne flutes ever, let alone they were full. So I spilled the entire tray on uh, Laura Maniac, who was running as the master song at Pork Buzz. I spilled all over her. And, she, and, I, and I just looked at her and I'm, I just said, I apologize. We're going to pay for your dry cleaning. And she just kind of laughed and played it off. And I ended up passing, which was great. I haven't done that since, but. Yeah. Like when would you ever have to like have a full tray of champagne glasses now? Like it would have to be at like a dinner party or some kind of corporate event or something like that. It's just not something you'd see in like in a restaurant either, you know? No, a thousand percent. I mean, honestly, I, I say this all the time to people and I say the best servers from a technical standpoint, are banquet servers that walk around like 50 trays of champagne glasses. If you ask like any server, sommelier that has ever worked in like a Michelin-starred restaurant to carry a tray of 60 full champagne flutes, it will never, <laughs> it, it will never, it will never make it. So it's pretty funny. But so yeah, and then when I when I when I flew back, uh, I was just like, wow, I, like this is so cool. The restaurant was open now, and I was like. What's what's next for me? One of the other restaurants that I was looking at working in before, while I was looking at looking at uh, Claw, was Cezanne, and and I had been following what was going on with that restaurant because Cezanne was a little bit under the radar. Um, but for those that were kind of really in tune with the what was happening in the industry, everybody was paying attention to what Josh was doing, and so I said to myself, "Look, I have." X amount of years under my belt. You know, I've worked at some nice restaurants. I'm now certified sommelier. Like I would, I would like to learn and continue to learn about wine. I'd like to learn about service. I like, I'm just going to move back to San Francisco because there's Bennu, there's Quince, there's Cezanne, you know, there's the French Laundry, there's Meadowood. There's all of these French Laundry was a three-star. All the other restaurants were just two-star restaurants. I went back, found a place to live and started applying for positions. And I applied to Quince, Bennu, and, and Cezanne. They're all in the city. I was super lucky to get an interview at all of them. All of them said, so you're looking for a cook job. And I was like, <laughs> they're like, so do you want to be a sous chef? I was like, no, 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 I want to be, like, I want to be a, I want to work in the dining room. I want to work with wine. I want to work in the dining room. And they're all like, well, you have like 10 years of kitchen experience and no experience ever in the dining room. So like, if you want to work in the dining room, you're going to like start at the bottom. And I said, that's fine. I don't. was lucky to get an offer from all three places, regardless of which one I would have taken. It would have all put me in really great positions uh, in the future. But I, the, what was calling me from Cezanne was, was the edge. It was unlike any other restaurant in, in the U.S. At, at the time. The, the food, you know, everything was cooked over fire. Um, we were really just looking at, at how to do things differently. And, and I obviously respect all of the, you know, historical Michelin-starred restaurants, you know, the way that the Laundry does it or Danielle or Per Se or whatnot. Cezanne was just looking at it from an entirely different perspective. And to me, that was really exciting. And they also had an incredible wine cellar. So it was kind of an easy decision that I would go in that direction. Started working as, as a back server. 
I didn't, I knew nothing. I didn't know like what side the fork was supposed to go on. Like I just was just there, <laughs> uh, but learned quickly, you know, you just kind of figure it out. You're thrown into this environment and you're like, this is, you do this, this is, you do that. And because you have this, because I've had this like cook mentality, if you tell me how to do something, I'll, I'll remember and figure it out. But then you have to also remember that you're not just like running around with your your head down, you're interacting with people. And so it was, um, it was a really interesting experience from the personal side to get away from working with people for, you know, 12 to 14 hours every single day and not having to really ever have a conversation with them to like constantly smiling and looking up and, you know, being aware of your body language standing up straight was, it was interesting. So yeah, I was back serving. We were so hungry. It was, it was a really great team. Everyone was just like, we want this third star. We want this third star. We want this third star. And just started moving up through the ranks. And we, you know, started moving into a captain position, started working with the wine program. I started working with the bar program. You know, we got the third star. We raised up through the ranks of the San Pellegrino list. It was really incredible. The, the access to wine there is really kind of what allowed me to kind of be in the position that I am today. Um, because I mean, at this time, I mean, within my first week, we were opening up 60s DRC. I had tasted all of the 82 first growths. I mean, just so much amazing wine that you weren't just tasting, like people were we're pouring you glasses. They're like, you've never had DRC before? Like, here, have a glass of my 1964 Bronze Asher. You're like, okay, that's cool. Thank you. And that's just because Saison was such a small dining room, seven tables. So it was really intimate. And you get to know your, you get to know your guests, sometimes at a very like personal level. It was really cool. All of that experience, specifically with Burgundy, really made me interested in kind of seeing what the next what the next steps would be. And so I, I basically had a choice. Um, you know, the discussion was kind of on the table of like, well, we can move you into some sort of director of service or something kind of role, or obviously I stay in the position that I'm in, or I move on to do something else. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't know what I wanted, but I, what I wanted, I guess, was really just to be able to learn more and, and capture more experiences. And I guess how I, what I found now with myself was that, okay, I've worked at, I went from this Michelin star restaurant to another Michelin star restaurant. And like, it's kind of the same path that a lot of restaurant industry follows, right? You, a lot of people like work at the French laundry and then they go to per se, and then they go to Madison park and like, they just move around in all of these same circles. Hey, I've always wanted something totally different that would really come back at at another point in my life to give me a spring to, uh, you know, a platform to spring. I just said to myself, Hey, I've always wanted to live in Japan. And that was it. That was, I was that all, that's all that it took. So I, I, through my Canadian citizenship, applied for a working holiday visa. And just like I did with Vancouver, I just moved to Japan. No job. I just moved. And I said to myself, look, I have a nice resume. I'll figure it out, which in retrospect, I would, was probably not a good idea. But I would never recommend that to anybody because like the odds of anybody getting a job in Japan is like, is so slim. Like I was so lucky to be able to find a place that ended up being like a dream job. 
So I got to Japan. I found a place to live. The reality set in that I now have an apartment in Tokyo. I don't speak Japanese and I don't have a job. So I emailed two places. I emailed Lefervescence and I emailed Takazawa. And so there were three places that I really wanted to, to work at. One was Den, uh, Lefervescence, and then the other was, was Takazawa. So those are my three like top picks. Um, obviously, like places like Ryugin would be amazing, but those were really my my three things. And I just had a really inspirational meal um, at all of them uh, prior to me moving there. Um, that just it was kind of clear for me. So yeah, I had a decision to make. I, I you know I had a job opportunity with uh, at Lefervescence, and I had a job opportunity at Takazawa. And not dissimilarly from Cezanne, Takazawa had this edge of perfection. It was also such a unique restaurant. I mean, it's a three-table restaurant that serves 10 guests a night with, at the time, a small but really cool wine list. They also had a little bar across the street called Takazawa Bar. And I, there was just something that, you know, I walked through with Takazawa-san and his wife, Akiko, and they're like, well, you know, we have like these are the wine glasses that we use. Like, what do you think? You know, like we're just like, this is the sake. This is the, you know, this is the wine cellar, blah, blah, blah. It was really, it was really cool. So I took the job. And you're still cooking there too, right? You're cooking during the day and then at night you're doing the wine stuff. Correct. I would say in Japan, in restaurants, you just get hired. Like maybe sometimes you're hired for positions, but they're like, yeah, we're going to hire you. Like, okay, I'm going to do whatever you want. Obviously with all the cooking experience. Yeah, I started in the kitchen. Um, and I stayed in the kitchen for just a little while. And then what happened was a table came in. It was like four um, expats. And one of them was like moving away or something. They were asking all these questions about wine. Akiko speaks fluent English. And Takazawa speaks pretty good English. But sometimes, obviously, with like fast speaking Americans and talking about wine, you, you get a little, it's easy to get a little lost. And so he was just, hey, can you, you were a song. Like, can you just go like, talk to the table they ended up spending like probably the same amount of in what the takazawa made in revenue for an entire month in one night and he was just like well like can you do this more you know more often so it just it, it just turned into like going to skiji market with the sous chef at like eight in the morning and then just cooking until like four and then working in the dining room until 1 a.m <laughs> and uh, like six days a week. And it was a really, really cool experience. And then as things went, we just started like going through the wine so quickly that I was like, hey, like, you know, we need to get more wine, blah, blah, blah. It was a small selection. It was maybe 70 to 100 selections, which is actually like a pretty decent amount of wine considering there's really only three tables in the restaurant. And he, and, and they were just like, hey, like we'll invest into the wine program. Here's, X amount of money, like we're just going to kind of let you do what you what you want with the program. And we ended up taking it from you know seventy to one hundred selections to like fifteen hundred selections, going for the Wine Spectator Awards. Um, and it turned into this little kind of oasis in in Tokyo, specifically the bar as well, Takazawa Bar. Like it blossomed into this place where like everybody visiting Tokyo that was into wine would come here to drink wine. We had a really big following in Singapore and Thailand, Hong Kong, um, getting to know all these wine collectors. And 
you know, I thought that like drinking the wines that I did at Cezanne was the best it would ever get. You know, I was drinking DRC all the time and Koch and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is great. When I moved to Tokyo to a 10 table restaurant, I have never drank better in my life. It was insane. Like the amount of amazing um, bottles of Burgundy that we opened at that restaurant was, it really was like the, a fast track to like, it was like gaining an opinion because you, you drink these wines so many times that you see bottle variation. Um, you see perhaps different importer strips or different corks or whatever. It's, it was really, um, it was really fascinating. We had a, a gentleman, his name was, we called him Wine Papa. And I never understood. I actually thought that it was their dad. They called him Wine Papa because he had this immense cellar. And to this day, and even doing what we're doing now, he has one of the greatest collections of wine I've, I've ever seen. Like Henri Jaillet cases stacked up to the ceiling, bought direct from the domain, like just really spectacular. He was so excited because Takazawa had never had a, um, they had never had a sommelier before. It was just uh, the chef was also the, the sommelier and he would do the whole thing. I mean, with 10 tables or with 10, 10 covers a night, you can, you can do those things. And he was so excited that he came in for dinner, brought all these really amazing wines. He brought Coach from the eighties. He brought Rousseau, uh, 93s, 85, uh, Benz, like really amazing stuff. And he said to me, just looked at me in the eye and said, what have you never drank before? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know how to, like, how do you answer this question? And he's like, well, he just started naming producers. And he's like, well, have you had Loire? And I was like, oh yeah, I've had some, you know, have you had Jaye? And I was like, I was like, oh, I've had some, but like, I've never had Richborg. And like, of course, like you haven't had Richborg. It's this tiny production wine that ostensibly doesn't exist. That's the most expensive red wine in the world, you know? And he laughs and he's like, of course, you know? So the night goes on. We're just like, he's just kind of keep asking me things. And he's like, I want to have dinner with you next week. He's like, I want to, I'm going to bring some wine. I'm like, okay, cool. And he's like, is there any requests? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. He gets to like his dessert course. He's eating like this $300 melon uh, or sorry, it was a mango and like a piece falls on the floor. And I go to pick it up and I run back into the kitchen and the chef brings like cuts up an entire mango and serves it to him. And I bring it to him and I said, I, you know, I'll bring the mango and you bring the giant and just made this like made this joke about the dinner to him and obviously didn't expect him to bring anything of that caliber. But he ended up bringing um, 85 Jaya Richbord, which is probably the most, maybe 78 is more sought after. I don't know, but 85 is probably the wine that like people look for the most from Henri Jaya and a magnum of it like three months ago sold in Hong Kong on auction from Sotheby's for like $250,000, like just like insane. So he brings wine amongst like the greatest white burgundy I've ever had, which was 69 Roadway Musini Blanc, perfect bottle. It was amazing. Um, so we're just drinking all these wines and that just, that just went on for two years. Like it was crazy. Japanese people have, when they love something, like they just, they just corner the market and just buy it. It's, it's really amazing. But it was such a unique experience being in Japan that, you know, the culture um, is so different. Um, it's not an easy place to work. It's a really, it is a really challenging place to work. It is all about respect of your boss um, and dedication to your craft. 
there's very little life balance. But I was, you know, the team that we had, Atiku and Takazawa were incredible. That even though you spend six days a week working and you work all day and all night and you're always kind of tired, you are so happy. You find, you kind of find bliss uh, in that because like it's, it, it, you just, it's a totally different perspective of what life balance is because it's really like you spend, your, your life is work. And if you're doing something that you enjoy, which is, to be honest, actually very rare in Japan, I think most people are really not, don't find a lot of their jobs fulfilling. Um, but, you know, in the restaurant industry, it was really incredible. And because we were such a small restaurant, we did a lot of guest dinners and traveled all over Japan and did these pop-up events. It was, it was really cool. And after two years of being there, it, the visa situation was getting a little tricky. You know, I was able to extend my visa and then we were going down sponsorship. And Japan has all these really weird rules. And so the first, the second, or the, it was like the third extension, we basically applied for me to be like a Somalia. And they're like, well, you can't be a Somalia because you need 10 years experience, but you could be a cook because you have 10, you know, so we're just like going down this path. And the uncertainty of the future was a little challenging. And of course, like anything, I got that call at the right time. And, and, and Joshua from, from Cezanne called me and was like, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, living in Japan, what do you do? And he's just telling me, he's like, I want to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to open Angler and we have all these other crazy ideas, whatever. He's like, I want you to come back. And I was like, okay, like what, what position are you looking for? And he's like, we'll figure it out. Just come back. I'm like, all right. Flew back to San Francisco, started working at Cezanne right away. And he's just like, I want you to bring it all together. I want you to like, look at the wine program. I want you to look at the service. I want you to look at the cook, the kitchen, the reservations. I want you to look at the plates, the forks, the knives, the, the way that like the menu paper, the coasters that we use. I want you to look at everything and I want you to tie it all together. So I ended up being sort of this director of service and beverage. And it was, my job was to connect the way that the cooks interacted with the wine team and the service team, the way that things were expedited, the, the timing of things, uh, what plates we used, um, on the service side was to work with the dining room team to figure out all of those service systems. Like what are the steps of service? Everything from like the very first initial confirmation phone call or email and like what that timing was all the way to like sending a thank you email at 24 hours or 36 hours after the guest left. The wine team, same thing. It was, it was not so much necessarily just curating the wine list, it was more like, how can we provide guests a great wine experience? So let's get rid of just a set wine pairing. Like here's how we can do custom wine pairings. Here's what you can do if somebody is like ordering uh, an additional bottle of wine, like you can go to the kitchen and say, hey, I need another course or two courses or whatever in order to kind of stretch out their menu in order to also make it work for wine. And so that's, that's what I did. And then after some, you know, some time doing that, there was a lot of changes that were coming on. So Angler started becoming live, the concept started becoming live. And then also Josh was stepping out of Cezanne and Laurent Raw was stepping in. And so uh, I helped with the transition of, of Laurent, who, by the way, is an incredible chef. I mean, like, 
I said something a while back about like Jonathan and how he was in tune with everything. Laurent was, he paid attention to every single thing that was happening. He didn't drink wine. Like he might have like a sip on the weekends, but during the week, he never, he never drank. He always came in with a brand new dry clean pair of pants, jacket, apron, like his shoes were always polished. He was just like so on point. He just paid attention to everything. He would ask, what is the wine that they're drinking? And he's like, oh, like, I don't think that's the right wine. You're like, you know, see, so just, it was really, it was really amazing to work with him. And I, I learned a lot from him. Yeah. He's like the only chef to ever have like four different restaurants with like three Michelin stars or something like it, it's crazy when you like go into his, his history of just different restaurants he run and all these different accolades and you're just like, whoa. And now he's basically like semi-retired, I think in, in New York. Yeah, he's hanging out in New York. Um, I mean, L2O, I mean, L2O was a legend. And I, I think like a lot of probably younger cooks don't really know what L2O is or was, um, but that was a pretty groundbreaking restaurant and the kitchen, the way that it was run um, was it was really, really, really cool. So yeah, we worked together um, for, because he was there for, I was probably about a year. And then at the same time, Angler was being developed in, which was a, a massive undertaking, which I don't know if that was, <laughs> Josh is an amazing chef. He like really looks at every single aspect, not dissimilar from, from, from Laurent. But when we were opening Angler, it was just like, we need to not like just buy water glasses. Like we need to like look at 15 water glasses and pick the best water glass that we can get. You know, like the, all of these little details of this restaurant. So Angler was a massive undertaking. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that it got a Michelin star very quickly because like it was definitely designed with a three Michelin star mentality, um, but trying to dial things back and make it a little more fun and, and open. And so that was really cool to develop that, that those service systems right from, from zero to, to, to what it is today. It was cool to like, say, how can we provide things? Like, how can we, how can we provide people with a service that like that table, just that table specifically wants and needs rather than this like really hard regimented, like we do this, we do this, we do this. And, and, I think a lot of restaurants don't do that because when you leave people to have their own opinions on how things are done, you get yourself into some sticky situations, right? Because everyone has a different view. But when you can give people 15 different options for each scenario, it, uh, I, sometimes it can work. And I think, I think the overall response of Angler was, was, was great. And the food was awesome. And uh, I don't work there anymore, obviously, but I probably eat there like, I don't know, a couple times a month, like just because it's delicious. And so being back at Cezanne and Angler and, you know, I was reunited with a lot of the, the regular guests that, that I had known from, you know, years before, obviously with a lot more wine knowledge, you know, it was someone who became a really close friend of mine, her and her husband came in all the time and they would just be like, pick out the wine, whatever, we don't just tell us about it, but like pick out the wine and we trust you, you know, what we like to drink. And it turned into just like some very casual asks of being like, hey, like every time we go to Cezanne, you always pick wine that we like, like, can you help us find some stuff for our house? Like, can you help put it in the cellar? 
Like, sure, of course, no problem. Didn't even think about it. Didn't, didn't, wasn't a, wasn't a business idea. It wasn't, uh, I wasn't getting paid for it. I was just like, yeah, sure, I'm happy to help. And then it turned into like the development of like a pretty big wine collection. That's when I got the spark and someone also asked me to help them. And I got the spark that was like, huh, this is interesting. Like people come to restaurants and they love to interact with small A's because they can sometimes add a lot of insightful, you know, information. People that are, uh, you know, building collections or already have collections. I feel like that's something that's a service while niche is, is something that people would find super valuable. And so now with kind of moving towards, I guess, if you want to call them clients, I was like, I'm going to start, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Um, I think that there's something here. I want to go for it. And so I founded the LLC in 2019 and I left the restaurant in early spring 2020. And I just went full-time in the business. I, I, I left, I went to, um, Southeast Asia for like a month and a half. Uh, I went to this little, I went, where did I go? I went into, I flew into Manila and I went to this little tiny dive town called Mwabwal. It was like four hour drive from Cebu. And I thought I was going to die the entire drive. But that's insane. Like the driver's like driving a hundred miles an hour down these little dirt roads. It was pretty wild. I was like, I might not ever make it back. That's fine. Um, and so I, yeah, I just, you know, I, I kind of worked remotely and did like uh, concept development on basically on the beach and tried to just like, you know, take a little vacation and relax and come up with um, the name of the company and logo and just kind of brand development, website, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not unlike me to like never actually take a vacation and like, you know, unplug, like I was on vacation, but still working the entire time. Um, and so, yeah, I came up with, with TWC and Thatcher's Wine Consulting, flew back and then just did kind of a, you know, a hardcore press, met a lot of clients, went out for dinners and, and, and tried to make the business, you know, what it is today. You know, the whole, at the time, the, the, the heart of the idea was just helping to make things a little bit easier. And, you know, I always say like, it's one thing to have a house built with a 5,000 bottle cellar, but it's a whole other thing to fill it with 5,000 bottles. I mean, a box of wine, a case of wine in a shipper comes in bottles of 12. So like you have literally thousands of empty boxes that you need to get rid of. You have young, you need to buy young wine, old wine. Is it a good price? Is it too expensive? Is it, is the bottle real? Uh, it, you know, is has it been stored properly has it where did what is the what is the provenance like has it been sold and traded around the world multiple times or it's a lot of time and attention and so i you know i thought that the value that we could offer was 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 that exactly was allowing people to have a little bit more uh transparency and clarity and like de actually develop goals it's yeah like every, you know a lot of people want to be a wine collector but you can throw money at it all day long and never actually develop a uh, a collection with any sort of sustainability. You'll just, you'll buy wine that you want to drink and then you'll just drink it right away. And then now you don't have any wine. And so it's, I see it, I see it all the time or they just, you know, you only buy old wine and then, and 50% of it isn't good, or you only buy young wine and then you don't have anything to drink right now. It's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. So so yeah, I started doing that. Um, it, it took off. I, we 
I was lucky to kind of gain some, some traction. And, and in doing so, I started to find sort of just things that I thought could make the whole company a little bit more valuable. And so we started developing our own inventory and we did only things kind of private sales. And the reason that we started developing our own inventory was we were getting clients that were like, Hey, like I'm going to dinner tonight. Like I need a bottle of like, you know, champagne from 1996. Like, can you get me one? You're like, you're like, man, like it's hard. It's hard to like act so quickly on those things because I got to contact somebody and like call up another retailer and they're like, Oh, it's two 30. It's past our cutoff time. Like, uh, you know, but if I had this stuff in house, obviously I'm not going to have everything, but if we had some wine in house for exactly this example, it's going to add so much value for, for, for clients. And then the inventory grew and I said, well, everybody, I love all of these wines that we're purchasing and with a lot of wine collectors, not all of them, but with a lot of like the bigger wine collectors. And by bigger, I mean like 5,000, 10,000, 30, 50,000 bottles. They're definitely very focused on like very particular areas and in very, it, it gets even smaller uh, when you get inside of those regions. So like in Burgundy, there's like 10 producers that all of these guys want, but that doesn't mean there aren't other really incredible producers that in a couple of years will be valued the same way. And so I was like, Hey, you know what, let's, I'm going to do a website and I want to keep it small. I want to keep it boutique. Um, I just want to be able to, of course, have the 10 producers that everyone's looking for, but I would like to also be able to have in inventory, some young generation winemakers from Champagne, Italy, Burgundy, that I'm really passionate about in the Rhone that I can now say, Hey, look, we have this, like, let me send you 12 bottles of these producers to try. And it just made things a little bit easier. And so we launched, I launched the website about a year after fully full-time leaving the restaurant. So I, I launched it in like January of uh, 2021, which was good timing. We launched a few months before the world fell apart to kind of, you know, like help us to develop a little bit of, I guess what you could call online equity or online real estate in the sense that like, okay, like people have seen the TWC name before, whether on social media or now on Wine Searcher. Uh, and we're getting some, some, a lot of people sending emails and curious about the provenance of the bottles. And I was like, I definitely need someone to hire, um, to work with, to kind of help with this process. Um, because what I, what I don't want is for anything to, to suffer. I don't want the private client side to be neglected, or I don't want the website side to be neglected. I need somebody that's really going to add a lot of value to the team and like organization, logistics and things like that. And so hired Noah, um, who was the director of uh, wine programs for this for Cezanne. And he's, you know, one of my best friends and like he, he's been awesome. And he added a lot to a lot to the team. And so then, you know, as things went, I, I we started to gain a little bit more of like perspective on on the retail world. And, and I just, you know, we'd always say to each other, like, I can't believe like how outdated this, this, this industry is. It's all of these sort of old guard, old retailers that have been doing it for 20 or 30 years, that have zero technology, that have no inventory control, that have zero automation. And like, I don't, even if we continue to stay small, I want to build an infrastructure that will be scalable, but will also be sustainable for the future. 
And so we started working with some software developers and like building some custom software, automation, just being able to track what inventory was, developing a lot of backend stuff that I feel like most, honestly, most retailers still to this day, like don't have, most people are still like working off of a Google document with a inventory that is never live, that has so many discrepancies. Um, obviously, the big, the big, big retailers have, you know, Salesforce behind them or whatever. But a lot of small guys are really, it's, it's a shame because it, it takes a lot to implement it. But once you do, your life is so much, <laughs> your life is so much easier. So we put a, a, a lot of time and attention. And even to this day, I mean, we're, we're still constantly developing and, and trying to add more things onto the website. We started doing texting, for example, you know, wh- where people can now um, just text with, with the, the team um, and they get offers ahead of emails. And it's really, uh, it, it's something that a couple, I've seen a couple people start to, to roll things out like that, but not, not so many. And then we also started the import company, which is, which is brand new and uh, it's called Thatcher's Imports. And the, the whole idea there is not dissimilar from the, um, not dissimilar from the website. I mean, we want to work with a lot of young producers that are looking through their own lenses and not just necessarily the way that it's been done, paying attention to, paying attention to the environment, um, to sustainable agriculture, you know, really in tune with what's happening in the vineyards. Um, and we, uh, it just just picked up a few months ago our first official import, um, which is Benjamin Benoit, just a young a young kid in the Jura who worked for some really famous Burgundy producers that are just like already cult status, and he's just making a few thousand bottles a year. Wines are really good. They're in a they're definitely in his own lens. They're not. There's nothing that I can think of coming from the Jura that are quite like his wines. They're I think a lot of people often think that like Jura wines, and he mostly focuses on reds, are really sort of funky uh, or natural. He's making, he's pretty much making Burgundy in Jura, which is, uh, I think, an, an amazing way to, to look at it. Yeah, I mean, those three aspects are really the things that we're focused on. So we have the, the private client side, and we help in all, pretty much if you, if you love wine and you have a collection or want to build a collection, we can handle every aspect. So we, we do a lot of, we spend a lot of time. A lot of people love buying wines on auctions. Um, so we spend a lot of time going through auctions and not just saying, Oh, you should pay this price, but actually finding out, leveraging our relationships with the auction houses and finding out the provenance, looking at pictures. I've, I flew to Geneva for an auction and inspected every single bottle that we were going to bid on to make sure that they were all in great condition of the logistics of shipping wine across the world for maybe private events. You know, you're having, we have clients that like have a yacht down in the Caribbean and they're like, Hey, we need some cases of wine down there, getting it to them. Um, So really focusing on just whatever those needs are. And then the retail platform, as I had mentioned, and now the the import. Um, And then we hired in March of last year, Courtney, who was the wine director at the modern in New York, which I don't, to me, the modern had the best, probably the best wine list in New York that I can, that I, you know, I think they're, they had an, she did an amazing job with the list. I mean, they had pretty much everything that you wanted to drink in a 
great setting, um, with great service, and the pricing of the wine list was also amazing, which I, I think why people, you know, flock to to that restaurant. And she's the director of private clients. Um, so she really helps with those relationships and all of the sort of high touch needs that some of the private clients need help with, arranging dinners um, and, uh, you know, having bottles sent to restaurants prior and, um, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, now there's the three of us. Yeah, we're just, we're just trucking along. It's been fun so far. Do you have a limit to how many like clients that you can bring on board or is it once you get to a certain threshold where everybody's kind of maxed out, then you just add more people? No, I, there's definitely a threshold. So the way that our, the way that it works is we're, we're, we're retained on a, on a, on an annual basis. Some with some exceptions for like, if somebody contacts us and they're like, Hey, like, can you arrange a special wine dinner? Like we can, we'll figure that stuff out as well. But generally the way that it works is we're retained on an annual basis. And there's definitely a maximum number of, of clients. We have relatively long conversations, meetings, dinners before we actually go through the retainer process because it is so high touch. And I think that um, you have to make sure that like goals are, ultimately aligned. They have to be kind of mutual. And for some people, um, it's they have bigger budgets than others. Some people spend millions of dollars a year. Some people spend a lot less than that. It just depends um, on the person. But we try to kind of take the same uh, mentality that we had after working in Michelin starred restaurants to just curate the the um, you know the experience of the of the retainer to them specifically. So you know have we hit the number um, of total clients that we'll take? Yes, no. I mean, what we've been doing is slowing things down and just making sure that uh, we're not taking a rapid amount of new clients um, and just making sure that all of those things align. And obviously, if it was just me, the number would be much smaller, but Courtney's, Courtney and Noah are incredible. And so um, we're lucky to have a really amazing team and we look at um, building a collection, the way to build a collection in a very similar way. Um, so it definitely adds, I guess, a little bit of scalability, but the private client side will always remain very small and very exclusive. Um, whereas the you know online e-commerce platform allows us to reach much more clients with really exciting lines. And that's like something that is much more scalable where anybody can go online and say, well, I would like to know what wines they're excited about because there's not a single bottle of wine on the website that I don't, I don't believe in. And a lot of the wine world is like, you have to buy X to get Y. Like I just like, I have, I, we don't really want to play, play that game. We want to, we want to do it the way that makes sense to us. Because if we believe in one producer, why do I have to buy a producer that I, that I don't believe in, you know? And so it's interesting. And um, we've been lucky to kind of leverage a lot of years in restaurants um, with importers or direct from producers that understand that. And uh, we have great relationships with, and so we're lucky to be able to, you know, have some things that, it, or at least they're a little patient in how we play the game. So has there been any like pushback with your concept so far? I mean, being like a private sommelier is, is an unconventional path. Do you think people are kind of looking to you as like a test case for almost like potential new lane that other people could go down and get into instead of being a sommelier in a restaurant or a wine shop or for a wine distributor? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's there's obviously plenty of cons- like wine consultants out there, if you will. A lot of them focus more so on like their bread and butter is focusing either on like events um, where they'll like ho- like host like corporate tastings for like tech companies or consulting with restaurants to like help them build their wine list. Not so much that I see on a private client focus. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've, we've definitely had, we've definitely had, um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and just say, like, ask questions, like, how do you, like, how do you get paid? Right. Cause that was my, I mean, that was my biggest question when, when I started the, the business was like, how do I get paid? Because when I was a sommelier and, and this is, this is literally how it started. I, I was like, I don't know how to actually charge for what I'm doing. And I'm reading, there's no information. Like, I'm like, do I come up with like an, an hourly fee? Do I come up with like a percentage based off of what I buy? And when I started, I thought that 1% of anything that I bought for a client was too much. And they said to me, no, somebody already does this for us. They charge us 11%. And I was like, oh, like, I just have no, I'm like, I'm so off on what I'm, what I'm doing here. And so, so many, I get so many like Instagram DMs being like, Hey, do you have a moment for a call? I'm just figuring out like how you charge people, you know? And it's all just like young sommeliers trying to figure out those things. I'll say this, I'll say that a lot of psalms want to go down this path and it's a, it can be a really amazing path to go down, but you have to find, my, my advice would be, you have to find something that protects you and provides longevity because just because you have one person, one client, and this is how a lot of songs start. They have like one client that wants to buy a lot of wine. So when this one client buys a million dollars wine or $10 million of wine, whatever in year one, and then in year two, they go, well, I have $10 million worth of wine. I don't need any more wine. What have you been doing to allow you to create a business. And I think a lot of songs that get into this miss the, that aspect. And there isn't longevity because I know a lot of songs that have went in and just said, okay, cool. This is what I'm doing. I'm advising a couple people on buying, on buying wine. And then all of a sudden they stop buying wine. And then you're like, oh, it seems like it's a really great platform to, to go down. Um, and I've seen a lot of things pop up, a lot of songs leaving, especially with this last year over COVID, you know, trying to start a consultancy, whether it's based on restaurants or private clients or buying or selling or whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know if I would say there's been any pushback, but there's definitely been a lot of questions that have been asked for sure. Even with like the pandemic, you were still traveling, even when traveling was kind of shut down, right? Like you were still trying to get wine, trying to secure wine for clients and stuff like that. What was, what was that like? Cause that had to be, I mean, I just traveled for the first time in like 18 months and it was weird. Um, there's just like the airports are closed, like, you know, like all the shops and stuff are closed and, and just different, you know, policies, procedures and stuff. So what was that like just going through it in the middle of it? So I was in New York in March for La Palais and I flew back from Palais like the day before San Francisco locked down and like, as like the day that New York locked down. So I got back and I was like, whoa, like what's happening? I don't know what's happening. And like, I was getting, you know, phone calls from people, people that are worth like, like a very, very significant 
with like several Bs or like saying, hey, you should like get your money out of the bank and like, you know, the world's going to fall apart. And I was like, oh my God, what's going on? And so I like, I'm just thinking, sitting back and being like, huh, nobody expected the wine market to go up. Nobody thought that buying, people were going to be buying wine. Nobody knew really what was going on. So for a couple of months, I, uh, we had some clients, they were still buying, didn't, didn't die down, just kind of like, was like, all right, we'll see what happens. We already had the website going, which was great. It was bringing in a, a very small amount of revenue, but like still something. And then every single month, people were like, hey, I'm, I need more wine, I need more wine. And I think by April, people were just like, but bored. You know, they're already bored. And they're like, hey, we're like, I'm looking at this. Should I buy this? Should I buy this? We're getting all these things. We're getting inquiries. And so every month was like that. And so we were in a position in April of last year where we're, we're just buying. A lot of restaurants were selling inventory. We're buying. We're selling it to clients. We're putting on the website. So we were in a, we were, you know, thankfully in a very good place during COVID. And like, you know, wine directors or sommeliers were contacting us and they're like, hey, you know, I have like, I have these wines, like I'm not working, like, and we, you know, we would buy them from them and we would try to give them the best possible price that we could give them, try to like help out friends and, and you know, family. Um, and then by what happened was in, in June, we, I got an email uh, from a producer in Burgundy who wanted to meet. And um, I was like, huh, how am I going to do this? Like, I can't say no. Like I have to go, I have to go to France to, to see this person. And so I'm like looking and like, all right, U.S. citizens can't go to Europe, like, but I'm actually Canadian and Donald Trump was in office. So I was like, I'm really Canadian. And so I flew back. So I, I, I figured out a, a, how to get over to Europe and because Europe didn't, it didn't matter really where, where you were flying from. It was kind of a weird loophole. It was what passport you were entering on. Um, so I ended up going back to Canada and then flying to Europe, went to the meeting and ended up being like, I don't understand why I would go back to the U.S. right now. San Francisco, like California was on fire. It was a disaster. Uh, New York was falling apart. San Francisco was just, California was just starting to go down. Like it was, so I ended up staying in Europe for three months. I stayed in Burgundy pretty much the entire time, which was a really wild experience because there was no Americans, there was no tourists, there were a couple, you know, British people, maybe a couple, no, that was really about it, just a couple Brits and like just winemakers. And so it was easy to get visits and like spend time and they're like, yeah, we'll have dinner. And over the summer in Europe, France kind of laxed its, you know, restrictions because there weren't as many, there were so many COVID cases, everything was on a decline. So, you know, people were wearing masks, but it was uh, definitely in the sort of like European, a little more laid back mentality, which is definitely not how it is right now because they're still locked down. But so that was incredible. I mean, the amount of like um, networking and connections and things that I made during that time were, were incredible because you're just like, you're the, I was the only one that was there. There was no tourist. Nobody was, was there during harvest of over the 2020 vintage. So it was, it was pretty, um, pretty special or sorry, the 21 vintage, no, wait, 20, sorry, that was there. That was interesting. Spent three months, came back. And then when I flew back, ironically, the U S didn't ask me a single question, which was wild to me. I was like, 
they didn't even know where I was coming from, which was because I have a Canadian passport and a U.S. passport. They just had they didn't know and they didn't ask any questions and just walked in. And I was like, okay, this is weird. A lot of COVID tests um, got back quarantined. And then we had over the summer in California, everything was kind of lightening up again. You know, things were seemed like cases were going down. Um, Travel seemed okay. Um, so then we had like a couple clients that were trying to arrange a super small birthday gathering in like Southern California. And so like went down there and just tried to be as careful as possible. You know, I mean, the only thing that, I, you know, the thing that I never wanted to do was give somebody COVID, right? I never wanted to spread it. Like if I got it, I got it. You know, I'm young, 30, like I uh, probably not much is going to happen to me. I'll probably be fine. But like my, the worst thing that I could do is, is is spread that with somebody but yeah i mean it's i realized that like i was really careful i've gotten so many covid tests i there was nobody ever on any planes like when i flew to europe there was 10 10 people on the entire plane it's just like i don't know how you like i don't know how it's going to spread on this plane right and i think it's been proven that like it's flying is really not that unsafe and so the most of the year you know i've flew with Delta in their 50% capacity, but the planes were probably at 20% the entire time. Never sat next to anybody. The airports were empty. There was nobody at hotels. You get to the hotel, you get a rapid COVID test and then have a dinner and then get another COVID test and then fly back home kind of thing. And so, you know, it was, it was definitely weird traveling for sure, but I don't know. I mean, I think everybody has their own, their own, their own views on, on that. I, you know, I now traveling worries me way more than traveling last year because there was no one moving around. Now it, airplanes are at hundred percent capacity. Uh, and like I was in, I took a little vacation in April and like the airports, like JFK was like insane. And, and it was so busy. We missed our flight. Like it so you know I'm more worried about traveling now um, than I was traveling last year. With with COVID and like you said, different restaurants were selling off. You know, there are wine sellers, and I think maybe even some collectors were too as well. Depending on you know other business ventures and debt and all that stuff. Was there anything that you were able to get your hands on? that you were like surprised to be able to find that like for the first time ever, it was like, Oh wow. I can't believe I'm able to get this. Yeah. I mean, 2020 was a buyer's market for sure. Um, the, the things that were coming up on, on uh, coming up for sale were just crazy. I mean, I would, it's hard to, to nail down. Really. I think it was the, just the volume in what, what we were able to get our hands on. Like, um, you know, solo champagne or Keller or Allemand, um, Trucho, DRC. I mean, people were just, people just wanted an outlet for this stuff, right? You, you know, all of the new allocations are still coming in. Importers are still need to sell the wines and restaurants are like, well, we've been open for three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. Like, we take the same wines every single vintage. If we don't take them, then like next year, we might not, they might not offer it to us again. So I was, because of working in, in restaurants and Courtney working in restaurants and Noah in restaurants, like we know all the Psalms or wine directors or owners of the restaurant. And we're like, Hey, like just 
like if there's stuff that you guys, you know, if we can help you, like what we're happy to like talk to clients because they're all, they all want these wines. So I don't know if it would, if it's hard, if it's, if it's, I could say like one specific instance, but it was definitely more just like overall volume of like these wines that are generally really hard to, to get that we were just getting like a lot of, a lot of quantities. Now, after, after this year, I mean, we have like, it's all gone. Like it all sold like right away. Uh, if anything, there's like a, um, retailers are like, we don't have any wine left. Like people are just going insane. It's pretty crazy. When the Eater article came out, I think it was like October and then like maybe two months later, there was another article in San Francisco Magazine. Did you get an influx of like emails and DMs on Instagram and stuff from like people that you know, were like, hey, are you taking new clients or? So yeah, there were, we were lucky. There was a few articles that came out. Um, the San Francisco Magazine article was, was awesome. It definitely brought in a lot of uh, sort of just like inquiries like people sending you know they're like oh i heard you recommended this one like could we you know do you have this um hey uh, you know i want to build a collection my husband wants to build a collection can you help that kind of thing the either article which was really amazing the sort of profile piece was it made the industry aware of what we were doing because either still like a pretty industry oriented um platform a lot of wine directors, importers, sommeliers were like sending me messages being like, oh, congratulations. Like, that's so excited, exciting what we're, what you're doing. Like we knew, but like we didn't really fully understand, which was cool. And there was also a mention of, you know, the NBA working with some NBA athletes and like some sports agencies reached out and just kind of being like, hey, you know, we have players that would be interested. Like, how could we, you know, how can we work together kind of thing? And so and then obviously a lot of traffic on the site, a lot of people, um, like overnight people were like the site went from, you know, maybe 50 to 70 people a, a day, you know, going to the websites and like hundreds and hundreds of people, which was, which was great, which is also kind of like, oh, we need more wine. <laughs> like we need to keep up with the demand also. So yeah, we were, I mean, super, super lucky about those articles. I mean, it was, I'm very thankful of those. You're a certified Somalia, why did you never decide to go further within either the court of the master sommeliers or even, you know, because in Canada, the wine and spirit education trust, like you never went any further. What was kind of your reasoning behind that? You know, I think for me, it, like when I was in Japan, I really focused, like when I was younger, I wanted to be a master sommelier for sure. As, as I went through and and not just tasted more wine, but actually sat down and, and drank the bottles of wine. My perspective and taste and palate changed quite a lot. I figured out what I love. I figured out what my palate likes. I figured out what goes with the food that I like to eat. I honed in and focused on the regions that I care about in terms of knowledge. And the world shrunk a little bit. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that there aren't amazing wines being made in Chile or South Africa or whatnot, but it's just those necessarily aren't the regions that I want to have the most intimate knowledge about because I'm I'm just not as passionate about those about those wines because I don't they don't work with the way that I like to eat so much, for example. And so you for me, going down the, the, the route of Master Smalley is really, really, really amazing. But I wanted to be the person 
that had an opinion about the wines, that had drunk the wines, that knew that it was, this is the first vintage and that this cousin took over at this domain in Burgundy and, and et cetera, and et cetera, rather than having a necessarily outside, but great view of the entire wine world. I wanted to focus on Burgundy. I wanted to focus on Champagne. I wanted to focus on the Northern Rome and just be incredibly knowledgeable about those things and have an opinion on how those wines taste. And I think that like with a, a lot of master sommeliers, they're incredibly smart, but you can't know everything. It's just impossible. And I just wanted to focus. And so that's why I just kind of decided to not go down that, that master route because I could spend the next several years learning about all these other subregions, or I could focus in on Burgundy, which is an incredibly complicated region with so much vineyard variation and vintage variation. And I could learn and crush that region and it will put me where I want to be. Whereas I don't really have any aspirations to be a, you know, a teacher or um, I don't want to run a massive uh, distribution company uh, where like, you know, you're working with like big brands. Like that's not an aspiration for me. I want to focus on crushing service, giving people experiences that like years later that they remember, that's a benchmark for them. And I want to be as knowledgeable as I possibly can about the regions that I care about the most. And most important is I want to taste them and be able to articulate what that is like. And if you ask a lot of master sommeliers, what is the best 82 first growth Bordeaux to drink? I, a lot of them have never even had the wines. And for me, I have a title, but is that, are you actually that master if you've never had these benchmark examples? So I just put myself in a position to taste all of these wines and drink all of these wines rather than just simply reading about them. So that's why I never really pursued anything, anything past that. When you were in Japan, you took the Kiki Zakeshi examination. That's for sake, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of the certified sommelier of, of sake, which I had always liked sake. Um, I always found it fascinating. But then being there and tasting the stuff that isn't actually imported into the U.S. was incredible. And so I just put my head in the books and like learned and read and tasted a lot of, of, of sake when I was there. Do you still do stuff with sake with your new consulting company or is that pretty... Like you don't get a whole lot of asks for it. You know, it's funny. Like we actually get like actually quite a lot of clients are like, Hey, like, can we get like some of these really awesome, you know, rare bottles? Um, because like, I love it. I don't know much about it, but like, I'd like to learn about it. I'd like to taste it. And like, you know, I love, you know, eating sushi or I love Japanese food and whatever. So like, I'd love to have sake around that I can just kind of pull these great bottles for. I, would love to do more with it. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think there's a lot of trends in sake that uh, today that are uh, totally changing uh, what people's preconceived notions of sake would be. Like, for example, I think a lot of people think that sake's, you know, ABV is like 17 or 18%, or maybe even in the more medium side of like 16%. But there's a lot of producers now in Japan that are making sakes at 10, 11, 12% alcohol which make it incredibly food friendly. You know, the problem is in the U S is that there's no 
there's no good supply chain from Japan to to the U.S. And there are uh, plenty of sakes that are imported into the U.S. But the thing about sake is it's incredibly sensitive, and it really should be stored at a negative degree temperature. Um, otherwise, it starts to deteriorate. And a lot of people, a lot of distribution, just keeps it in you know a 55 degree temperature, and it totally starts to fall apart. And if you taste the same bottle that has freshly arrived to the U.S. versus has been sitting there for six months, it's completely different, and you start to develop all of these sort of off flavors. And so. We work with a few a few sakes sometimes on special requests for people, but generally it, the only time that we'll buy it is the moment that it comes into the U.S. And then we tell them to keep it as cold as they possibly can. I have explored trying to start a sake import company. Uh, a really good friend of mine who is in Japan basically controls all of the exporting out of Japan for all of the best sake breweries. And she's told them, hey, the U.S. is a disaster with their distribution, so don't export your sake. And she, but she said to me, hey, if you can give a, a plus one or, or negative one degree of variance in your shipping method at like negative two degrees, I'll tell all of the brewers that to, to give them to you. But then when it arrives here, it needs to also be stored at this temperature. And then when it goes to restaurants, it has to be sort of this perfect temperature and like all of these really, really crazy guidelines that would make a $20 bottle of sake in Japan a $180 bottle of sake in the US, which it's just a, a little bit of a challenge. But like, I would love to kind of pursue that because I think that there is such an interesting market for sake and it's such a versatile uh, beverage. Do you still want to open a restaurant one day? Uh, yeah, I do. I very much do. No, it's definitely still on the agenda and maybe perhaps not in a uh, not so uh, far future. I miss it all the time. Uh, and then talking to Courtney and Noah, like, we're like, man, like it would be fun to work service tonight. Yeah, I mean, it's just been a part of our lives for so long. And I think it also plays in, could play into what we're doing with TWC, uh, where you have you know, an outlet to do really great wine dinners and, and whatnot. And so definitely we're, you know, the, the concepts there. When you guys, you know, you specifically, or when you guys as a group go out to like a dinner, are you guys able to enjoy the dinner itself? Or do you find yourselves like compulsively checking the wine list at that place to see like what they have and, and anything like that? Yeah. I mean, for me, when I was a cook, I was the worst person to have dinner with ever. Like I just, I just like didn't want to talk. I just wanted to focus on the food. Like I was, I was obsessed. I was terrible to have dinner with. And um, when I started getting into to service, I was not dissimilar. I was just like always watching service and like I don't know why they like why would they do this and like why would they put the fork there and kind of things. Now like I've learned to like step back and just have a really good time and try to enjoy it. Obviously, like if you if you when we're with clients. Um, it's a little different because we're trying to also make sure that, you know, they're getting what, what they need, but I, I've stepped, I've dialed, I've like, I enjoy restaurants for what they are. And I think I'm a pretty easy going, uh, diner now. Uh, if you had me work service, it would be a different <laughs> scenario, but, um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a, a hard ass. Yeah. Just sitting down enjoying dinner. I'm pretty easy going about, about things. Do you find that people buy the wine itself, like because it's popular name brand, or do they buy the story behind the bottle of wine? 
I think both. I think both. I think everyone's a little, I think everyone's a little different. I mean, some people are definitely uh, like score chasers or like label chasers, right? Where they're just like, I've heard that this is the best line. Like we, I need to buy this. And then other people are like, oh, well, that's a really cool story about the vineyard or about the vintage or about the winemaker or whatever um, that get a little bit more in- invested. But I think I think that's really what's kind of special about a Burgundy, for example, is the incredibly complex like family histories that you get yourselves into. And it's like, oh, well, this was this, this is the, you know, daughter of this winemaker and her husband is also making the wine with her. And like people get really interested in that. And I think that that's really exciting. And the younger generation, I think, is getting, because all of this information is much more accessible, a lot of wine is getting sold by the story rather than just saying, like someone saying like, oh, it's expensive, so you have to buy it. I personally really enjoy champagne. Uh, I know a lot of people have some stigmas with it. Why do you think so many people are hesitant to drink it or or try it? I mean, obviously, the champagne houses have done a great job with marketing as kind of like the celebration beverage, but it seems like it would be a natural fit with kind of like the Instagram, social media lifestyle of, of stuff that's depicted that isn't really accurate. So, I mean, why do you think more people aren't open to trying it or... Do you think like the champagne houses need to shift kind of like their marketing, their appeal to people because of younger generations or? Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge champagne fanatic. Like it's, it's, we have probably 150 different selections of, of, of champagne on the website. I believe in it. I think it's a, a that proportion of the market uh, is actually like in a huge uprise right now. Like grower champagne is huge. And the prices for some of these champagnes, are like skyrocketing to a point where like you can't even find like Privo Rosé, Solos Rosé, like those wines like a year ago were like $200. Now I can't find them for like less than $500. And there's just like none for sale anywhere in the US. It's insane. I think that that it's changing. I think that champagne is incredibly versatile. I think one of the problems was that exact marketing with champagne houses, right? Like Dom and Cristal, like... And I really, I actually really like Cristal, but Dom and Cristal definitely market themselves for like these special occasion things. And also it's like the first thing that you open and they're always young and you don't pay attention to the vintage and they're just like pouring it in like champagne coupes, which is not ideal or like, you know, really narrow, you know, champagne flutes. And so it, it just loses its relevancy when you have all these really spectacular like whites and reds that you're really paying attention to. But I think that that's changing. And I think like with all these young winemakers, with all these young winemakers in Champagne that are focusing on like, you know, great viticulture, they're not even really doing marketing. Maybe they have like a nice label or something, but they're not really doing like, you know, like Krug and Dom and Boulanger marketing. They're just making really great wines. And people are like, huh, like actually like I'm going to open this wine. I'm going to let it breathe for several hours. I'm going to drink a white wine and then have the champagne after because I want to give the champagne time to develop. Like people are really paying attention. And from what we see for sales, like some of the stuff that we put on the website, like Emmanuel Brochet, Prevo, Solos, Cedric Bouchard, like when we put like when we put one of those some of those producers online, like it sells in like a second. I'm like, I don't even understand how like 
I just pressed publish and it's already on and it's somebody already bought it to the point where like people are so crazy about those drunk champagnes that we only put one bottle for sale at a time on the website because somebody will just buy everything and then we don't have it and we can't find it again. So we just put one bottle. We just limit it to one bottle at a time for purchases for people. So I think that that it's changing. We put a lot of attention into champagne. I think it ages incredibly well. I think it works at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. I think you can you can drink drink it with everything. Um, so I'm excited to see where where champagne champagne goes. I think it's changing. I know you have a private collection. Is there a favorite bottle that you have in your private collection, or is there one that like you're looking to add specifically? Uh I mean, my biggest. And, and, and he knows this too, Charles. Uh, Arnola show for me is my, is my, my most sought after wine, the wine that I probably spend um, a, a lot of time looking and also talking about. Charles took over and for his domain in 2013. And there was like a massive change in 2017. And his 17s and 18s and, and 19s will be released soon are just like magnificent wines. And like, I, I, being a, a wine lover and also somebody that sells wines, it, it's one of the most painful wines for me to sell because I just, I see what's happening and it's, people are going crazy for the wines. I mean, I was buying his sous show in 2017 for $290 and it, the 19th will be like 1500 bucks, like in like it's it's just like it's crazy. Like people are like, wow, these wines are magical. So I'd probably say that that that's probably for me the, the the top of my list in terms of like things that like you know I continue to add for me the probably the most prized bottle I have at this point. And I mentioned this in Japan was like the best bottle of white burgundy I ever had was a '69 Beaujolais Musigny Blanc, and I took that was seven years ago and it's taken me seven years to be able to find a bottle and I found one bottle and I just like I was gonna drink it on my 30th birthday and didn't do it. I just couldn't pull the trigger on it. I'm just like waiting for something. I'm just like I don't, you know, like should I wait till 40? I'm just gonna it's just gonna be like a random day one day. I'm just gonna be like, you know what? Like it's just time. It's just time to do it. So a few more questions. We asked these to everybody. I know we kind of ran over the time here, so we'll get you out of here. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your sommelier career thus far? Um, you know, I think it, it's a, that's a tough question to answer, but I, you know, I, I think that Takazawa was, was incredibly influential for me, even though he wasn't a full-time sommelier. Like the way that he was able to cook and also be a sommelier and also connect with guests about wines was really inspirational. And, um, you know, I've always respected him so much for that. And it, it's just, he, he removed any of the sort of um, stigmas of wine that you're like, Oh, you always have to be fancy. Like it's, you do what you do, whatever you have to do, you know, like you're like sell a bottle of Romani Conti and then you have to clean the toilet at the end of the night, you know, like we're all in this together kind of thing. And, uh, I, so I, I think for, for him, he really, that work ethic that he put into it, I, I really pretty inspirational. What's your desert Island wine? I'm assuming it's the, the white burgundy there. Well, you know, if it's a desert Island wine, it's gotta be, it's gotta be champagne for sure. I mean, it'd probably be, um, oh boy, it would probably be 
Prevo facsimile, the rosé. Like I could, that's probably my desert island wine. I assume the island's hot, you know, so. I know you don't have a restaurant right now, but I guess what is the restaurant that you'd recommend that wasn't one that you spent time at? So whether it's, you know, San Francisco or Windsor or whatever, but what's the one place that if somebody hit you up for a recommendation, you're like, this is the place you need to check out. Oh man. Um, I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm thinking in, in, in San Francisco, I mean, you know, the, the classic that everybody obviously needs to go to is, is Zuni. I mean, it's, it's been an institution, you know, for, for years. And I pretty much just order is a couple dozen oysters, a Caesar salad, the chicken and French fries, same, same thing every single time. I think that it's a restaurant that everyone needs to check out. If you're going to make a trip, I would definitely suggest uh, Inagia, which is in, um, it's in Japan. It's like, it's like a three hour train ride and then like an hour taxi from, from Tokyo. But they do, it's in the middle of, of the forest and they basically cook everything over uh, this charcoal. So they, they stick them in, everything gets skewered and they, they grill it around the charcoal. They go foraging for all of these ingredients in the morning. So sometimes it's kuma, which is bear. Uh, sometimes it's matsutake. They go fishing, they grab a fish and then they grill it for you. It's such an incredible experience that I like highly suggest anybody that goes to Japan, like take the day to do it. They also have like an amazing, an amazing wine list. Like it's so cool to like sit around a charcoal grill with like bear that was like caught or shot like a few hours ago and like drinking a bottle of DRC. It's like one of the coolest things ever. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Is there anything that you haven't been to that you desperately want to go to? Yeah, bucket list restaurant for me is still Michel Bra Toya, uh, which is up in in Hokkaido. So Michel Bra has had that restaurant there for a long time. I've just never, I've never been. I've always wanted to go. It is like it's around Lake Toya, which is this, it's this gorgeous lake, and I would love to go in the winter just because there's like Hokkaido gets like six feet of snow, which doesn't obviously sound appealing to people. But like, you know, when you're, if you're going to go somewhere that gets a lot of snow, I'd rather go with the snow. Bucket list travel destination. You know, I've never, I've never been to India. I've always wanted to go. It's, um, I find the, the food to be really, really incredible. There's so many different um, types or so many different languages and religions. You know, it, depending on where you are, it could definitely be a very challenging trip. But like, I would love to see uh, India. Uh, that's that's probably number one for me. What's the craziest thing you've seen in a restaurant while you're working? Uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot. The craziest thing, I mean, the craziest thing, there's so many. It's it's hard to nail one down. But I'd say probably the craziest thing for me was, uh, was I don't I don't work there anymore, so I feel like I just can't share this. But I was with, uh, when uh, Amber Harold and, and Johnny Depp celebrated their their honeymoon at Saison. And uh, they, we had like a private, private counter and it was just the two of them, myself and the chef. And we just like, we're like just drinking wine together all night. And was, she wanted to drink 89 Lamish Oprion and he wanted to drink like 59 Oprion. And she's like, no, it's too old. I don't want to drink that. I want to drink like my birthday wine, whatever, whatever. So the dinner goes on and they drink a couple bottles of the 89 and they're finishing up dinner. And he's like, Hey, can you, Patrick, can you go get the, the 59 Oprion? I said, sure. No problem. So I get it. I bring it out in this basket and you know, it's been laying on its side for years. So there's all this sediment you put it in the basket so it doesn't get disturbed. 
put it in front of him. And I was like, great. He's like, I'm like, do you want me to just open it? Do you want me to decant it? He doesn't say anything. He just like, he's just like, looks, he just grabs the bottle and just hands it to me. And he's like, thanks for making the honeymoon so special. And I was like, what? I'm like, I'm not just going to let you give me a like 59 Oprion. Like, he's like, no, no, no. She doesn't want to drink it. You have it. Like, thanks so much. And they're like, go to leave. And I was like, no, you guys can't leave. Like, we have to drink this together. So we just drank the wine. It's pretty, it's pretty cool experience. Do you have like a food or drink guilty pleasure? Is there something that either, you know, is it fast food or is it something like if you're in the grocery store and you just kind of know like that aisle's coming up, that this thing is down there and you're like, I got to steer clear of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I need to stay away from kettle brand uh, salt and vinegar chips. Like that's my, like I can't go down the chip aisle in the grocery store because like I'm trying to eat healthy, but like I could just eat bags and bags and bags of that. But I would say the, the biggest guilty pleasure in Saison, it was funny, it was, it was across the street from uh, Cantina Taco Bell. Cantina, when that place opened, was like the Michelin star of Taco Bell. They had like servers and like they served you margaritas and stuff. And like we used to send the newest employee to Taco Bell on like Saturdays. And they would always go like right before Taco Bell closed. And they would say like, Hey, can we get like 150 hard tacos? And they would just like, they're like, we're closing in like 10 minutes. There's like a line of like 50 people waiting to get the tacos. And like, we would just eat those hard taco Supremes. And they're, they're still to the, I don't eat them anymore. I would. I came up with like 10 wine documentaries movies. So pick the one of the following that you think's the the best one. Psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Sour Grapes, Decanted, Blood into Wine, Bottle Shock, A Good Year, Uncorked or Sideways. I think Sour Grapes brings um brings up a lot of like really interesting points about what's happening in the wine world. I also know like all those guys in the movie and like so it's it's kind of interesting to to see but I think Sour Grapes like those things have those things are happening and it's a big problem. Some some producers are being much more proactive by using like UV lights or like um, you know special uh, closures and etc. But I think that 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 movie has a lot of a lot of relevance to to the to the market of wine. So I'm asking you for four wine recommendations. So twenty dollars and under, fifty dollars and under, a hundred dollars and under, and then anything over a hundred dollars. What would you recommend to just like at the average kind of person that usually buys wine at kind of like the grocery store? Like, what do you think that they should kind of look for or try? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for the $20 and under, you know, I would say, honestly, any dry German Riesling is you're, you're going to be probably really, really, really happy with those wines. I think we're living in an era of greatness in Germany for dry wines. Um, you're not going to get into the Kellers or anything like that at that price point. Um, but, I, you know, what you'll get from a $20 bottle of dry German Riesling in compared to like dry, like, or just like a $20 bottle of Chablis is like, you're drinking amazing German wine, whereas like Chablis, you're like barely even entering like drinkable at that price point, to be honest. Uh, $50. Um, I think you can really dabble with some really great grower producers of, of champagne. The entry level... Uh, Don Grier at that price point, that's pretty much exactly what it's selling for. That wine is, it should be a $100 bottle of wine. A new producer kind of in the US market called uh, Lamblo. He's making um, a Mounier based champagne. His entry point, Mouvance, is about, is just like 40, 50 bucks a bottle. The wines are, the wines are spectacular. 
as you move into the hundred dollar price point, I think there's a lot of young, a lot of young growers in Burgundy that are making some really great stuff. I would say you can get into like a Vone Romane from Berthoser Bay. She's she's making gorgeous wines. Um, she makes a premier crew called Fisson Arvle that is like should be a $250 bottle of wine, but still like hovers in the $80 to $100 price point. I think those wines are spectacular. And I think that as you go up in price point, geez, I would say for me, one of the most kind of exciting producers to try that is over $100, but under a under $500 is probably like Alamon, for example. I think I think the Reynard, even the Shio um, from Cornos, um, those wines are really, really incredible. You know, they're selling for maybe between two to $300, $400 a bottle. But it, it's not going to surprise me that like in five years from now that those wines are like 1200 bucks because like they're just, they're really good. They're super complex, 100% Syrah. And really he's making Cornos unlike anybody else in the Northern Rhone. I mean, it's pretty spectacular. And last question, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. So is there a scene or a moment or something from TV show that stands out to you the most? And if you weren't an Anthony Bourdain fan, is there some sort of culinary influencer or travel host that did kind of help influence you getting into cooking and wine and everything? And, and is there a standout moment from them? Yeah, I mean, he's such an influential person. I mean, I've read his books uh, <laughs> many times. It was always the entryway. But I would say... The, you know, I, I used to watch like a cook's tour a lot before, like, you know, no reservations and whatever. I, I always was really, really, I was really inspired by like his trips to like Vietnam and, and cook's tour was 10 years ago, more, no more than that, probably now, like 15 years ago when cook's tour was out. And like, you know, when he was going to Vietnam, there was, it was obviously a very different world than what it is now, but it, it has always inspired me to visit. So when he was in Hanoi and eating like, Bansio, which is like the Vietnamese crepe. Like I was always like, I need to try this. And to this day, that's still like maybe my top three favorite foods in the whole world. Where can people find you? Plug everything, social media, website, reservations. I guess for you guys, it would be more so the website and, and your social media handles. Yeah. I mean, my Instagram is Thatcher Baker Briggs and the, the TWC is Thatcher's Wine Consulting. And then the website is thatcherswineconsulting.com easy to get in touch with us on, on any three platforms. The website, obviously, you can send us a direct email. Uh, you can also just purchase uh, directly on there as well. If you go to the website, does that take you to the retail part, the wine cellar? Yeah. So there's it opens up to the page and just kind of tells us a little bit about what we do. And then if you click the wine cellar, that will bring you to uh, where all the wines that we, that we have listed. And we ship pretty much everywhere. So there's not really a destination that we can't get the wine to. Well, I really appreciate your time. And I know we kind of went over the allotted amount. Yeah, this was awesome. If you ever need anything from me or, you know, just feel like jumping on a podcast or something to talk wine for some reason, you know, hit me up and I'll look forward to whenever you get around to opening that restaurant. I'll be one of the first people there. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Thatcher for taking some time out of his busy schedule, coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. It was awesome to just sit down and talk with him for, you know, an hour or two. And just kind of talk about wine and, you know, 
everything that he's faced with it and what he recommends and and his path kind of moving forward and everything that he's built. It's just definitely cool to see and, and cool to hear about and, and definitely, you know, hopefully can help, you know, motivate other people that are kind of working on their own thing in the wine industry too as well. Or even if it's, you know, not exactly the wine industry, if it's something else entirely, but hopefully it helps uh, kind of let people know that if you really put your mind forward and, and work hard and something that you really want to do, you can definitely accomplish that. So I, I think he's kind of a living embodiment of that and wish him nothing but success. Make sure to check out thatcherswineconsulting.com. That's where they also have the retail page up there at Thatcher Baker Briggs on Instagram at Thatcher's Wine Consulting on Instagram too as well. So definitely plan on staying in touch with him um, like I do with everybody, but um, you know, circle back, you know, around down the road and, and uh, see what else he's kind of getting himself up to and post COVID and everything like that. But thanks again uh, to Thatcher. Make sure to check out past episodes of Chefs and Guests. Previous episodes, we had Jamie Ma, who's a certified sommelier, journalist, food blogger, podcast host, bartender. Does a whole bunch of different stuff in the Vancouver scene. So if you haven't you know, listened to that one, definitely go back. That's a really interesting conversation just because he does so much different stuff. He's really kind of plugged into Vancouver. So definitely make sure to check out Midrange uh, YVR2 as well. That's on Instagram and then the website too. They have a bunch of different articles, a couple of different podcasts they do too as well. So there's so those are always, you know, I highly recommend them. They're enjoyable for me. So I think it's a lot of good content on there in article form and podcast form. So check that out. Make sure to check out the Olivia Hammond episode too as well. It came out before that. It'd be about like two weeks ago. She just kind of talks about her experience in the Columbus restaurant scene and coming up and kind of what she's looking to do next and everything. So also check out the episode with Advanced Sommelier Greg Stokes over at Veritas and Accent Wine, which is the wine shop that they're opening up downtown. Definitely interesting conversation with somebody who's, you know, really going for their master's certification. He's really going for it. So I really hope he gets it. You know, it's been put in a lot of work up to this point and i hope that he's able to just uh you know finish it off and that'd be really awesome to have you know a master sommelier in columbus ohio it's not something that you would ever think would happen but it'd be really cool you know if greg was able to to finish that off so we wish him the best as he gets back into doing more of the studying and everything like that but he's got a lot on his plate he's a busy dude too as well with the wine shop and doing the stuff at veritas and kind of popping in at citizens trust which is the cocktail bar right next door kind of right upstairs above the restaurant so check out all those places you know him and josh they've been great so um, we definitely love to support them as much as we can always a great time when we go in there to grab something to eat so they're always kind of messing around with the menu and different concepts and new wines and so definitely a great experience you know one of the best experiences that you can have at a restaurant in columbus so make sure to check out all those episodes previous ones too as well we'll be putting all those up on instagram i'm going to be doing a little bit of a remastering of some of the backlog I think it's like the first 12 or so Andrew's going to go through and just kind of just kind of give those a little, you know, shine, make them sound a little bit better, sound a little bit cleaner. We'll be making some announcements as we go through those two as well. But we have a lot more uh, new episodes coming out, too, as well. So it's just kind of balancing the two right now. But I think we got another four four or five episodes kind of set to release too as well. So definitely working towards the 26 episode goal. And then once we get there, uh, I got a couple ideas on something I want to do for like a special episode and then um, and some stuff after that. So more to come, but appreciate everybody listening. Make sure to check out Parts Now Known where it's me and Ben. We watch uh, Anthony Bourdain Parts Unknown episode and kind of recap it. If it's an episode that we don't really like, we kind of go off on wild tangents. Uh, If it's an episode we do like, then it's kind of more about that episode. 
also on Mondays, restaurant reviews, just kind of different experiences I've had, either new menus at restaurants that I really enjoy or um, different restaurant experiences I've had on, on trips that we've done, whether it's been to San Francisco, New York, or, you know, Detroit, wherever. So those are always fun kind of, you know, if you wind up traveling to one of those places as things start to open up, you know, definitely check some of those out. Usually a page on the website too, as well for the chef with the bios and different course pictures. And if there's a podcast, the course pictures are attached, but if not, have a little bit of a breakdown in there too, as well. If you're into champagne, I've been going through each of the champagne houses slowly, but surely and, and posting, you know, up there, different little reviews and stuff like that. So if you're looking for, you know, something in the champagne field, there's a few other wineries in there too, as well, that I really enjoy, but Definitely concentrating on kind of like the champagne lane, it seems like these days. But check all that stuff out. Make sure to check out the website. Always something new going up. New chef profile, new, you know, kind of wine description, wine bottle description, something. So always doing something for the website in my free time. So check that stuff out. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. Also Twitter and Facebook we're on, but make sure to follow us on Instagram for all kind of news updates. Make sure you're following or subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform you get your podcast from, whether it's Spotify, Apple, just go ahead and give us the follow. That way, you know, you don't miss any of the podcasts and uh, don't miss any of the updates or anything like that. But we're on all the major platforms. So Google, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, like pretty much everything. The only one that we're not, you can't probably find us on is Pandora just because they have a weird approval process, but make sure to give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts from. And uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. I guess Apple, if you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, they updated their whole system because they're trying to do podcast subscriptions now, just like Patreon does. And I guess it wiped out everybody's ratings and reviews. So if you get a chance, go on there, uh, give us a review, give us a rating. Um, there's a couple on there. I don't think there's any real reviews. I think it's just kind of a few ratings, 5.0. But um, yeah, if you get a chance, go on there, give us a, a rating and review. Feel free to contact us uh, on the website. There's a contact page, a little portal. You can submit in questions, comments, feedback, anything like that. Definitely got some interesting ones. Got one from somebody who's trying to get in touch, I think, with uh, Bresca over there and uh, in DC. They were trying to get in touch with the chef there, Brian Rettino, and it was like for a corporate event. And somehow, I don't I don't know exactly how they found my email or, or got in touch, um, but they sent it to us. And <laughs> it was just kind of weird. Um, but it's cool to know that, I guess, uh, even the big corporations can find us and um, shoot us an email every once in a while looking for some information on somebody. So, but that's it for this week. Next week, there'll be a new Chefs and Guests episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. I love doing these. It's a great time. I think everybody likes, you know, so far, a lot of good feedback for everybody that's guested too as well. And, and I'm doing a couple of guest uh, podcast episodes myself. So those will be more announcements on that coming out. I'm linking up with some other people in the community and helping them out and, and vice versa. So appreciate everybody listening. And we will talk to you guys next week.